electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello? One, two, three, four, seven, eight, nine, ten. This is Fast Money, and we are here tonight for the iConnections Global Alts Summit. The next two days, I'm Melissa Lee, joined on set by Dan Nathan and Guy Adami. Welcome to Miami, everybody. It's great to be here, right? It's excellent. It is a monster event, over 4,000 folks. Who's who of VCs, hedge funds, pension funds, wealth managers, and asset allocators. Here's what's on tap tonight. Big tech on deck, more than $10 trillion worth of market cap reporting earnings this week. Will the results add fuel to the Magnificent Seven's fire? We'll find out with top tech investor Brad Gerstner, founder and CEO of Altimeter Capital, why he says one of these high-flying names has even more room to run. Plus, we're counting down to Wednesday's big Fed decision. Will the central bank lay the groundwork for a rate cut at its next meeting? We'll get thoughts from Goldman Sachs' asset management's Elizabeth Burton. And later, place your bets. FanDuel parent company Flutter Entertainment making its debut on the New York Stock Exchange. We'll talk to Rick Heitzman, an investor in rival DraftKings, about the outlook for sports betting and what's at stake ahead of the Super Bowl. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll get to all that in just a few minutes, but we kick things off here in Miami Beach with the funding announcement that fueled a late-day rally in the markets, both the S&P and Dow notching records at the close, the S&P closing above 4,900 for the first time, while the Nasdaq, which led the gains today, is now less than 3% off the all-time set high set in November 2021. The moves came as the Treasury suggested its balance sheet is in stronger shape than originally thought. The government estimated it would sell $760 billion in bonds in the current quarter. That is down from what it borrowed in Q4 and about $55 billion less than its previous estimate. The Treasury plans to reduce auctions even more sharply in Q2. The news sending yields lower across the board with the 10-year falling close to the 4% handle at its lows. And there are plenty of other market headlines to watch this week, of course, earnings from five of the six biggest companies in the U.S., a Fed decision on Wednesday and a jobs report on Friday. So what does this all mean for investors? What are you hearing on the ground here, Guy? Well, that was the news, the Treasury news. Yeah. I mean, that the market was higher in the first place, mm -hmm. and then you got that, and obviously we ratcheted up. I mean, it's seemingly the market has every reason to rock. People are looking for good news. They're finding it in the form of all these different things, and here we are. The flip side of the coin, of course, is the higher the market goes, seemingly the more expensive it gets. I think it was Marco Kalanovic at J.P. Morgan, I think, put out a note earlier this afternoon talking about exactly that. So if it's just multiple expansion and we're going to rally on all these different things, as Dan would say, have at it. The higher we go, the more concerned I get. Have at it, Guy Dami. I mean, listen, you know, it's back to the narratives that were driving the stock market in 2023, right? And so when you think about where we are right now, we're like one month into the year. And I think what you just had to say, Mel, about this week, this is massive. When you think about the expectations for some of the biggest stocks in the entire stock market, how they have rallied into the earnings this week at a time where, okay, fine, we're back to yields 
are going lower. We're back to kind of CME Fed fund futures pricing in cuts maybe sooner than people were expecting just a couple weeks ago. I just worry again that we've lost a bit of that outperformance from the relative or the S&P equal weight. We're right. now getting a lot more concentrated and expectations are really high into these earnings and expectations are very low into the Fed on Wednesday. Yeah, I think there are real questions about whether or not that broad-based rally can actually find any steam in this sort of environment, mm -hmm. especially when you take a look at today's action. I mean, what stood out to me today was Tesla. Tesla, despite you know, basically the train wreck as Dan, mm -hmm. or Uber Bowl Dan yeah. Ives even calling the conference call a train wreck last week. But even in the face of that, managed to gain in today's session on basically no news. No news whatsoever. The broader market obviously right. helped. And the level that we traded down to sort of helped. I mean, if you watch Fast Money over the last six or seven months, we had been sort of flagging somewhere between 175 and 180. Seemingly was a home for the stock. I think we got to 179-ish last week. So I guess technically it made sense that we're bouncing off potentially in oversold conditions. You're 100% right. But, you know, it's one of those things where what are we really looking at here? I mean, this Treasury news obviously is fueling the fire. Mm -hmm. But are things as good as the market suggests? And I would say, you know what, Mel? No. And how does lower rates across the board in terms of across the yield curve factor into the Fed and how they will manage to keep rates restrictive enough to, you know, kind of hamper the economy from going gangbusters? Yeah, I mean, that last piece of the puzzle, and again, you know, that uh, the unemployment data is still pretty good, you know, below 4% mm -hmm. or so. And so that would be the thing that we were all kind of waiting for last year to kind of confirm what the Fed's, like, kind of final job was to do to moderate the pace in which the economy is moving. But after that GDP data that we had last week, after some of the jobs data that we had, um, it seems like the economy is humming along. So that's why I think the expectations for a dovish Fed is probably misplaced. And it might be even misplaced as we get into March a little bit. But I'll just say this, you know, we've talked now for five minutes and we haven't mentioned the geopolitical risks that exist out there. Oh, you know, last yes. night, you know, when this horrible attack happened in Jordan and crude oil was moving higher, we know that we've seen the dollar move higher. When you yeah. think of all the headwinds to growth out there and, and, and really the risk of an expanded situation going on in the Middle East with what's going on in the Red Sea and the like. So to me, I just think that like the risks get higher and the concentration in the same things that got us here um, exists, and they're probably a bit more acute now than they were just two months ago. We like to play that game. I was just going to say, it's amazing. Were, like, I can't head. even believe uh, you just said that. After 15 years, that's what happened. I was going to say, you know, we play this head. game. If I told you what, was ha what happened last night, where would you think the markets would be today? You certainly would not say where they are today. Should I write you that down said, somewhere? I mean, that, how did like you know as that? As if it were scripted. No, if you had not. told me, Lindsey Graham says bomb Tehran. Right. It was Cornyn said similar. I'm paraphrasing now. And then you told me about the deaths. Mm -hmm. What's going on? I would say oil's north of 80 bucks easy. Yields, I don't know because sometimes there's a flight to quality, so maybe yields are lower. But the S&P's got to be down 40 or 50 handles given what we had just given the run-up we've seen. And obviously that did not take place. Yields did go lower for the other reasons. Oil actually reversed and the market rallied. The market is impervious to just about everything right now. And that makes you even more skeptical. Well, it makes me skeptical again. I mean, listen, you know, I read a stat from FactSet this week that the top five or six stocks in the S&P 500 account for 54%, or they're 54% year-over-year expected growth. The bottom 494 are expected in Q4, okay, and this is a quarter that's behind us, to drop 10%. So again, the concentration, the expectation for these top five or 10 names is so massive. It's broader than it's ever been, at least in my career. So it just makes the, the, the potential for an accident like that much likely to happen. All right, can we rewind? to a year ago when we were sitting here at this sure. hotel for this conference 
and the consensus was so negative. A hundred percent. And here we are a year later, and the Nasdaq is up 35 percent or so. And you can tell people are very excited about what's going on. Yes. I mean, the difference in a year is, is amazing. Not only that, the weather over the year. I mean, it's like San Francisco right now. <laughs> it's chilly here, Melms, as you can tell. But people are excited about the opportunities. They think the Fed's out of the way. They think inflation's been tamed. They think unemployment is going to stay below 4%, that earnings are going to catch up, that small caps are going to catch up. It's polar opposite of what we saw a year ago in, in this same location. All right. Um, well, for more on the next move for markets and this week's Fed decision, we're joined here on set by Elizabeth Burton, client investment strategist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Elizabeth, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Um, you don't think the Fed's going to actually pivot until later this year, much later. So how are we set up in relationship to that expectation? Because it feels like we're, not we, but market participants are expecting something much sooner. Right, we believe that the, the pivot will start around March and continue in, in three cuts and then go to a quarterly cut cycle. Uh, in terms of the folks that I talk to most, which happen to be the institutional community, which are here at this event today, they're not trying to act on these individual decisions. They're thinking about the longer term effect of a higher interest rate environment, which even if we at Goldman Sachs believe that rate interest rates are coming, as a former CIO and allocator of an institutional fund, I still think I would be thinking about the risk to the upside that we're in a longer, higher for longer environment still. Do you think that, Elizabeth, is being reflected, at least in the stock market, through the Russell 2000 small caps, where it, the cost of capital gets higher, right? Obviously, these are the, more of a headwind to them, let's say, than the large caps, which are not dependent a whole heck of a lot. They seem to be fine either way, lower rates, higher rates, that sort of thing. Do you think that's what's being reflected in the disparity between the S&P 500 performance closing today at a new all-time high versus the Russell 2000, which is still down 20% from its all-time highs late 2021? Well, on the, on the small cap story, like one thing that they are taking advantage of still is they also are able to take advantage of some of these short term rates. Like they're also putting their cash in, in higher rates than like their large cap counterparties used to be able to do. So they're not totally getting hurt in a silo by, by this rate type of environment. Why they're underperforming versus their larger peers, I don't know. But to the points made earlier on the show, I do think the concentration risk something that we need to be aware of. And I, I do think it's time to look at small caps. I know there was some discussion earlier in the week on why, why people on the show may not agree with that. But I, I think in general, the risk of doing nothing is pretty great here with such a large exposure in the U.S. pension community and corporate uh, pension community. We're an alternative asset class conference and you're here. So connect those dots. I mean, what are your thoughts about that this year? Right. So I've been coming to this conference for years, even before I was at Goldman Sachs as an LP. It's one of my favorite events. Um, and I think what's interesting this year is that we've seen a resurgence in interest in hedge funds, which the last couple of years coming to this event as well, I'm sure you saw a lot of interest in private credit and private equity. There's still a lot of interest in private and credit and private equity. What's interesting to me about the interest resurging in hedge funds, is I think it's actually partly a liquidity story. Mm -hmm. Investors aren't so much hurt by this denominator effect. Now they're hurt by not getting their cash returned to them. Um, you know, it's, it's a fraction of what it has been in years past. And so I think, one, they're looking at hedge funds as a way to get access to alts in a more liquid fashion. But two, they're still concerned about these geopolitical events and market risks that you've been talking about. And sometimes it's hard to put on an option strategy uh, and, and know which one might pay off for, you know, the myriad of scenarios you're trying to prepare for. And hedge funds might be one way they're trying to mitigate for that. What kind of alts? What kind of? Uh, what kind of alts would yeah. are, so we like um, real estate debt. It's one of our favorite trades going into the next couple of years. We still like private equity. I think what's interesting from the allocator perspective is, you know, three, four years ago, there was so much cash to deploy into alts. 
just every private equity fund that came into your shop, you'd consider giving money to if they had a strong track record. Now you have to be more selective. You don't have as much cash uh, to go around. So interestingly, uh, strategies like renewables and sustainable and impact investments, these are all getting a lot more attention because what the focus is now is do you really have the operational capabilities to increase margins, you know, grow them over time, not just have some fancy financial uh, leverage gimmicks. For an area like sustainable, though, is there concern that higher rates are going to make it more difficult for products to get off the ground? I think higher rates are an issue for all alternative asset classes, yeah. right? So infrastructure was a good play last year, but you saw a lot of deals not getting done because buyers and sellers are having to re-underrate based on the higher rate environment. So I think that's going to be problematic for all alternative asset classes in a higher interest rate environment. Elizabeth, what do you think the primary um, reason for, let's say, only three cuts versus what the market was expecting, let's say, a month ago was maybe five or six cuts. What will be the reason for that? Will there be unexpected growth that, that, that you know what I mean? Like, essentially that some of the naysayers, um, you know, who are still planning on a recession coming at some point, like what will the reason be for only three cuts this year? Well, I think what we've heard from this Fed speak coming out is they want to take a measured approach. That language might change when we hear more language coming out in the coming weeks. But I think that they want to see that we're trending in the right direction. You, you know, Inflation isn't made up of one data point. It's made up of a lot of data points, and they're not all constantly trending in the same direction every single print. So I think part of that is that measured approach to sort of see as the data continues to play out, which parts are stickier than others. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Great to see you thanks here. Thanks for having Elizabeth me. Burton, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Alternatives are fascinating, and you mentioned higher rates, yeah. higher makes it more difficult. But, you know, in Elizabeth's work, she suggests inflation, you know what, it's probably going to be stickier and more problematic than the market realizes. And I agree with her on that. Right now, we're obviously not seeing it, but you're starting to see in some facets a reacceleration of inflation, which I think makes the Fed job that much more difficult, especially when the market's at levels we're at, and especially with the expectations, five, if not six cuts this year. Yeah, Mel, and you started this conversation by saying just the change in sentiment year over year, what the consensus was heading into 2023. It was very bearish, expecting, you know, I was in that camp expressing economic weakness. Um, and now here we are, the exact opposite. And I think what Elizabeth is kind of laying out is possible a stagflationary environment, right? And so if we are going to basically, and listen, and that GDP print and the GDP that we saw throughout last year was far better than expected, but that will moderate. The Fed themselves in mid-December was pointing to 1.4% growth this year. But if rates don't come down as much as market participants are expecting, I don't know how well that will translate into valuations for risk assets that are very pressed to the upside right now in the S&P 500 in particular. Right. Coming up, Tesla taking their Cybertruck roadshow to China. The EV maker hoping to keep excitement up, but will Chinese regulations become a roadblock for this company? The details are next when we head to Beijing Live and much more from here in Miami Beach. Altimeter Capital founder and CEO Brad Gerstner will join us in just a few minutes where he sees opportunity in Techland as we gear up for this week's results, plus his top picks in the space. You're watching Fast Money Live from the iConnections Global Alts Conference. We are back into... BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I know how to run a hair salon. 
But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Welcome back to Fast Money and Battle. Chinese property giant Evergrande was ordered to liquidate by a Hong Kong court overnight. Uh, CNBC's Eunice Yoon has the very latest. Eunice. Hey, Melissa. Well, trading in Evergrande-related stocks resumes today after being halted Monday along with that court order. A Hong Kong judge agreed with the creditors that the struggling property giant has ample opportunity to, to devise a debt restructuring plan. And the judge literally said enough is enough. Now, it's unclear what the impact of this order is going to be. Uh, in a statement, Evergrande's CEO had said that he was sorry about the winding up order and that the company would, quote, ensure home deliveries and promote normal operations. Uh, separately, he told a local paper that the uh, Hong Kong order only affects the specific listed company. Now, I spoke to, spoke to a, a creditor who said that that was not a justified comment, saying that the uh, liquidator is legal entitled to China's onshore assets. Now, uh, this is uh, what bankers and uh, lawyers have been telling me, that what happens next really depends on whether or not the Chinese-backed uh, Chinese courts, so the government-backed Chinese courts, would recognize the Hong Kong, Hong Kong liquidators in, and in that way allowing them access to uh, Evergrande's assets here, which is uh, mainly the bulk of the company's business. Guys? And Eunice, this will be a real test, especially for foreign investors. If this liquidation, which is probably the largest of its kind, doesn't happen smoothly, then yeah. that could really further sour appetite um, from, from foreign and overseas investors. Well, I would say among those creditors, for sure, uh, one of the, the creditors said to me that uh, they had just lost patience, especially in the past six months, because they fe felt that they were just uh, getting stonewalled the entire time. But I have spoken to other uh, foreign business executives who said, you know, well, these creditors, they did take a risk. They invested in what's seen as a very risky part of the uh, economy at this point. And so uh, they have to own that risk as well. Meantime, Eunice, a busy day, busy weekend here. Tesla kicking off its Cybertruck <laughs> tour in China over the weekend. The company is taking the high-concept EV truck to eight different cities across the country. But there are strict regulations they have to get around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's one of the main points that was coming up. Um, when people were um, eyeballing the, the Cybertruck, um, there was a lot of excitement. Um, they are, uh, you know, one of the, the, the um, key points here is that Tesla does still dominate the EV space, but a criticism has been that they don't refresh their models. So this promotional tour was seen as a way to get people excited again about Tesla technology. A big hurdle, though, are the regulations, especially around trucks. And one interesting point is that people pointed out the that uh, Tesla avoided the use of the word truck um, in their Chinese uh, labeling. Uh, basically, it's, it's, the Cybertruck here is called a, a traveling wagon. And it's uh, uh, one of the, re the, the, the hurdles is, is that uh, there's so many strict regulations about any type of pickup truck. So maybe this is a way that would make it a little bit easier for Tesla to be able to sell the Cybertruck, at least to regulators, um, but the, pop the population and the public uh, really seem to enjoy it.
<laughs> Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yoon in Beijing. I'm sure traveling wagon in Mandarin is catchier than in English. I can only hope. <laughs> we had a traveling wagon. They've got a lot of hurdles, though, in China, and not just selling the Cybertruck, just selling their normal vehicles. Yeah, and again, like expectations for the Cybertruck here in the U.S. are not particularly, uh, you know, they're not producing a lot. There's probably not going to be a whole heck of a lot of demand. You saw how it's operating in the snow. Have you seen some of those videos? Not particularly great. Um, I just think that when you think about China and you think about just some of the nationalistic tendencies that they're having right now towards, uh, let's just say, automobiles, EVs in particular, I just don't see that as a huge driver uh, over there in China. And it's also one of those things, if they don't like pickup trucks, it's a little conspicuous when you think, you know what I mean, when you think about it. So to me, it's DOA in China, in my opinion. Rivian is an interesting trade if you're looking for hmm. trades. I mean, in November of last year, the stock traded down to 15 and a quarter or so. By the middle of December, it was trading $24. It reversed the entire thing. So we've round-tripped the move, but we basically put in the same low we saw in November. So if you're looking for a trade, this is sort of an off-cycle report. I think they're mid-February or so. You know, Rivian could be interesting, especially if Tesla just put in a short-term bottom. So more bang for your buck maybe in Rivian. Dan's talked about this stock a number of times. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A big week of earnings. And with most of the Magnificent Seven reporting, all eyes are on tech. Top investor Brad Gerstner joins us to dig into the names and his top pick in the space. Plus, a sports betting debut. Flutter spreading its wings and entering the U.S. market, giving investors another way to play the space. What does it mean for rival DraftKings? Investor Rick Heitzman is here to weigh in. You're watching Fast Money, live from the iConnections Global Alts Conference in Miami Beach. We're back right after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Fast Money. The S&P closing at another all-time high as investors await big tech earnings as well as Wednesday's anticipated Fed decision. The Dow jumping more than 200 points, the Nasdaq rising more than 1%. Shares of Chipotle, meantime, up more than 3% today, hitting an all-time high. That stock is up nearly 50% over the past year. And Valero shares also higher today despite a down day for crude. Valero up nearly 7% this much, this month. What's behind it? Okay, so let's talk about Chipotle yeah. real quick. I mean, obviously now it's starting to get ahead of itself. They report in early February. I think you're going to see this continue to move. Analysts are probably still behind the curve. I was at the airport this morning at 5 o'clock. There was a line around the corner for CMG, number one. 5 o'clock? They no, saw actually, it in I'm the lying. Okay. I was just anecdotal. Valero, favorable Fake crack anecdotal. spreads. And if you look at what's been going on in Valero, <laughs> you would think that it would be under considerable pressure, but it's not. We should actually have, who's our friend that we talk to all the time, maybe Halima Croft come on and talk about this. But crude is going backwardated again. The crack spreads without getting in the weeds are favorable for the refiners. I think Valero can continue to go higher. From you there. know what the line around the corner was? Shake Shack. 
No. That, that, yeah, yeah, it Which is. Which is also and, in your imagination. Right, it's so, also a fake. So here, here's the one. When I think of like, 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 literally the performance <laughs> of a Chipotle, and I think mm-hmm. of you know McDonald's, which just made a new all-time high. I think of this company that just swung to Gap uh, profitability yep. for the first time ever. I see like double-digit, you know, kind of sales growth here. I, I think this is like with a four billion dollar enterprise value. This is a cheap, I think, asset in that space. I, I don't know how you keep piling into, let's say, a Chipotle or a McDonald's. People, because, you're right, but people have been saying that about CMG for yeah. three years. And when they split like 15 for one or 10 for one, then yeah. you, oh, 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 all these people. By the way, I worked at Shake Shack, as you know. Yes. I know. No, seriously. What was your specialty? Um, the Shack Burger. Pat, you know, Making pounding those patties, patties down. Yeah. I wore the little hat with the net. The I hope so. Yeah. All right, coming up. <laughs> FanDuel parent flutter listing in the U.S. today, giving investors another way to play the sports betting space. So what will the debut mean for uh, competitor DraftKings? Early investor and current shareholder Rick Heitzman will join us next to dig into the listing and what is next for the sports betting industry. But first, tech investor Brad Gerstner is here to lay out what to expect out of earnings this week, plus where he sees opportunity in the space. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money Live from Miami Beach is back in two. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money live in Miami Beach from the iConnections Global Alts Conference. It is a key week for tech earnings. Five of the magnificent seven tech stocks reporting quarterly results this week. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Meta platforms all on the calendar. Brad Gerstner is known as an early investor in Meta. He is the founder and CEO of Altimeter Capital. Joins us now on set. Brad, great to have you with us. Great to be here. We are talking about the market's just propensity to go higher. So what does that mean in terms of the setup for yeah, you know, these big week. tech stocks. Well, I'll tell you, it's a lot. The, the markets are a lot more heated up than it is right now in yeah. Miami. <laughs> um, but, you know, listen, we've come a long way quickly. Remember, the first week of the year, we MAG7 was down and everybody was panicking, right, that the run was over. And then we've had a 30% move out of NVIDIA higher. We've had a 10% move out of Microsoft higher. So we've had a big bounce off of the bottom. And I think this week they're gonna have to deliver on earnings or beat earnings in order to just stay where they are, right? And so I think on balance, if they were priced where they were in the first week of the year, I think you could make some fast money this week. But the reality is the month has already made some people some fast Mm -hmm. money. NASDAQ up 4%, Mm -hmm. a lot of these stocks up 5 to 10%. So... You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a little breather this week. So, so it pulled forward a lot of enthusiasm in a short period of time in a handful of names that did a lot of the heavy lifting last year. When I think about last week, think about like Tesla and the positioning right. of that. The stock had sold off 20% into the print, right. so expectations were really low. When they didn't deliver, the right. stock was down 12% the mm-hmm. next day. So when you think about a Microsoft, to your point, has rallied 12% in a straight line in three weeks, expectations couldn't be higher. Stock closed at an all-time high. It's trading at an all-time high valuation. It wouldn't take much to have that stock down 5-10% over the next few weeks. I mean, listen, I think it would take a lot for it to be down 10%. Mm-hmm. The problems at Tesla were idiosyncratic to Tesla. It was a disastrous call. You know, I saw a note out of them today. I think that's beginning to get constructive again. Mm-hmm. I think it looks interesting at these levels. But Microsoft is the leader, cloud leader mm-hmm. in AI. Um, I don't expect a blow away print, but we expect them to beat this week. Mm-hmm. I think the beat will be enough for it to hold its head, mm-hmm. but it's going to take a really big beat in order to get it moving higher after a 12% move to your point. Um, and if they don't, if there's a disappointment, like I say to my team, 
if your numbers are going higher, the stock's going higher. Mm -hmm. The problem with Tesla, its numbers went lower. So Microsoft, you know, we'll see when they report. I don't expect it to be a big beat, but we do expect it to be, uh, you know, continue to be constructive. Today's the 29th, thank you, Guy. The 22nd super microcomputer guided for the quarter, and the stock was up in a sort of a parabolic way. They came out with earnings today, the upper end of guidance, probably higher than the top end, and the stock's up again. Those are parabolic moves that we see sort of more towards the end of things in the beginning. However, maybe this is the start of something. So how do you wrap your head around something like yeah, I that? Yeah, I mean, listen, Supermicro took their full year guide up after the bell today by 40%, 40% to $14 billion. So that's why you're seeing these moves. Plus, as you and, as you and I were discussing, it's a heavily shorted mm -hmm. stock in the hedge fund community. So the stock's up 75% this year on numbers that are going a lot higher. This isn't about just wild multiple expansion, right? I think what you have in this moment in time is a platform disrupt disruption, an AI super cycle. It's very difficult to forecast, right? Think about NVIDIA at the start of last year. Data center revenues were expected to shrink by 6%, right? We thought we, we had huge variant perception by being up 16% and it ended up over 25%. Right? That is a wild difference between the beginning of year forecast and the full year forecast. Mm -hmm. So Supermicro is not a sign of an AI bubble or bubble bubblicious action. It's it's just, it went up and now hedge funds are short. So this is squeezy sort of action that we're seeing in today's session. But in terms of the AI leader being right. NVIDIA perhaps, right. is that still cheap in your view? So it, uh, NVIDIA ended last year at 20 times earnings its lowest multiple of earnings it's mm -hmm. ever traded at, despite the fact that it's the, the, the purest play AI name in, in, in the space. It's traded up to about 26 times. Mm -hmm. So there's a wall of worry, right? The number of times I heard from my investors and others, it's doubled over the course of the last year. We need to sell it. Yeah. Um, for us, we pay attention to the numbers. Our numbers are still well above the street for this year. I think there's a lot of doubt. Um, you know, the, the common uh, discussion at the end of last year was that they pulled forward all the AI training demand for the next several years. That's not what we see when we talk to customers who are putting bigger orders in the order book. So we think those numbers continue to go up. And back to Supermicro, they're building the servers mm -hmm. for folks like Meta, right, which leads to this increase in, in, in revenue. Let's be clear, if you miss your numbers, if you're Supermicro or NVIDIA or Microsoft, if you miss your numbers with this level of expectation after these moves, you're going to have a Tesla-like right, effect. So let's talk about some numbers. AMD tomorrow after the close, right? So everyone's excited now that they are going to have a competing product to NVIDIA. We know that the demand right now is off the charts here. Here's a company that's expected consensus right now to grow earnings 50% this year, grow sales 20%. It's a 53% gross margin company versus NVIDIA, which is about 75%. The stock is doubled right. since the end of last quarter. Right. So what's pulled forward? There's the numbers, Brad. Would you be buying after the stock has literally doubled in four months right here? So we, we don't own AMD. Yeah. We do own a lot of NVIDIA. It's one of our largest positions in the fund. It's been that way since the end of 22. Um, we think AMD will be beneficiaries, particularly the increased inference, which is going to go on, you know, driven by things like Microsoft's Copilot. We do see a lot of ordering out of all the folks we talk to about AMD. Um, but I still think the market leader here, 90 plus percent share is NVIDIA. So if you want to express that bet, right, which is AI leadership mm -hmm. at 25 to 30 times earnings, which is consistent with historical averages for 
NVIDIA, I think you just own NVIDIA. I think it was a year or so ago, maybe a little longer, that the CEO of NVIDIA mentioned Taiwan being, I don't want to say an existential risk, but he clearly was concerned. Is that something that worries you, the potential for a China-Taiwan dust-up? I mean, certainly you have to, uh, I don't think it's in any of our interests uh, to have the fears over a hot war that we had last year, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the summit which occurred in Silicon Valley between Biden and Xi was welcome. We've seen a lot of interaction, including Jensen going to China uh, recently. So I think that, you know, the, our concern about that tail risk is less today than it was six or nine months ago. Um, but clearly, this is going to continue to be an issue for the United States, right? Gina Raimondo has made clear, um, you know, that we're not going to sell our most bleeding-edge chips uh, to potential adversaries, right, that can be used for military purposes. So I expect they'll have to continue to navigate that. But they've had to continue mm -hmm. to, to navigate that over the course of the last 18 months, Scott. Um, and I don't think there's that much baked into the cake this year. Like, we're not heavily dependent upon some major shift in terms of distribution to China. So which uh, earnings report are you most concerned about this week? It sounds like Microsoft is a concern. I don't, I wouldn't say concern. Uh -huh. I'm just, you know, this show's called Fast Money. Yes. Thanks for having me on, my first time <laughs> on. I'm psyched to be here. Um, you know, I don't think there's fast money to be made in Microsoft uh, and Amazon this week, right? The fast money to be made was when everybody else was pessimistic yeah. at the end of last year when Mag7 traded down in the first week mm -hmm. of this year. Um, if there was one name that I think is better positioned this week, it's Meta. Um, I think people still underappreciate the commitment to efficiency at Meta, right? We talked about time to get fit over the course of 2023. We see a lot of companies now. I think you're going to hear it from Amazon on Thursday. A lot of companies that are dialing up those margins, holding the line in terms of new hires while their top line continues to grow. I think you're going to hear that out of Susan Lee uh, on Thursday out of Meta. And they are at the center. Like all of their businesses are accelerating. Whether you're looking at Reels, whether you're looking at WhatsApp, you know, Mark just announced on Threads today that he's, uh, you know, uh, they've introduced a, a new version of Code Llama, 70 billion parameter model. They're leaders in AI and they can monetize AI, right? If you think about this, all of the other cloud providers, right, that, that they're competing against one another to effectively rent AI tools, right, to enterprises. Meta is actually deploying those AI tools to, to increase monetization, yeah. to increase engagement for the benefit of the consumer. So if you look at a private company that we're invested in, like ByteDance, TikTok, continues to accelerate, Meta's accelerate from very high numbers. So we think they're one of the principal beneficiaries and they have so much discipline in that business and we love the things that they're investing in. Another thing we expect to beat this week out of them is the Meta AI glasses. A lot of people think about these and commingle them with AR, VR, right? They're not. This device for the first time is being challenged by AI devices. You're gonna see AI devices out of ByteDance, you're gonna see it out of Microsoft OpenAI, you're gonna see it out of Google, you're gonna see it out of Meta, and it's not just gonna be glasses, all sorts of devices that are powered by AI assistants. Brad, great to have you on. Great to Thank be here. So Thanks much. for having me. Of course I mean, how is. is this the first? How is this the first time you've really? been on this show? Seriously, he's usually on the halftime report with with Oh, it's fine. So we're sort of <laughs> chopped liver. Yeah, well. <laughs> no, not, always not at great all. to it's have. Great Brad. to be here, you Thank guys. You so Thanks much. for having me. Sounds like Apple should be very worried. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if and, that's going to be disrupted. And not that anybody cares, but remember, I went to Staten Island for that AR shoot years ago. When you had to fly like a bird, you got fly sick like a bird for days. Hopefully, it's improved since then because I was knocked out for two days. Anyway, back to you. That's all. Yeah. Do you agree with him on Meta? 
Um, you know, it's interesting. Think back to late 2021. They changed the name to the metaverse. They yeah, spent a lot of money. So what he's talking about is kind of the reversal of a lot of that spend. But they're leaning back into a lot of those themes from late 2021. So I, I think this is going to be a thing. You know, that Quest device is, you know, it's a, I don't know, $500 versus the Vision Pro, which is like $3,500. They have, you know, 3 billion installed base on almost every one of their, um, you know, services. I mean, at some point they will figure out how to monetize it. I kind of think it's in the stock right here. But his point about using AI to better serve yes. ads, that's the key point. Yeah. And I think he's all over it. So to me, that's where the upside of the story comes from. Coming up. Placing your bets, FanDuel parent company Flutter hitting the U.S. market today, giving investors another option for sports betting. We'll hear more from an early investor next. And bringing the flavor to Miami, the co-founders of hot sauce maker Truff. They are here, and they will give us a taste of their unique products. It's going to be hot. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. FanDuel parent company Flutter is making a big bet. The international sportsbook listing on the New York Stock Exchange today challenging its rival DraftKings for U.S. investment capital. The shares trading under the ticker symbol FLUT. For more, we go to Contessa Brewer for the details. Contessa. Yeah, Melissa, so you saw where Flutter shares ended the day, up a quarter percentage point at 205.50. They started the day with a lot of, you know, hoopla. There was a marching band. Turn that up. We want to hear that. Rob Gronkowski up there for the opening bell. As for the hype, the U.S. is the most important market for revenue and growth for the Ireland-based company. And FanDuel continues to be the market share leader. 51% share based on net gaming revenue. And it's overtaken BetMGM, and according to Jeffries, just overtook DraftKings in December as the leader in iGaming, or online casino. And yet DraftKings has grabbed most of the earned media and certainly the attention from equity investors, a publicly traded sports book. It offers a lot of opportunity. It closed higher today by almost 4%. Flutter CEO Peter Jackson told me today he's eager for the media coverage, but also for those high levels of liquidity from investment here. And in May, this is new, he's going to take this proposal to the shareholders to make the U.S. its primary listing and move London to a secondary listing. More immediately, of course, Melissa, they're looking forward to the Super Bowl. Jackson said FanDuel had its second best game ever yesterday after Super Bowl 2023. And they say at the peak of the 49ers game, there were 60,000 bets per minute rolling in. That's 10,000 more than peak Super Bowl last year. Wow. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Joining us now is First Mark co-founder Rick Heitzman. He's an early investor in another online sports betting stock, DraftKings. Rick, always good to see you. Great to see you live down here. here. I know. Fantastic. Fantastic. So how should we think about the Flutter listing? Because oftentimes, you know, we tend to simplify things. DraftKings will be the ATM for Flutter, vice versa. This is, you know, all the money will go to either one of these two listings. Is that the way to think about it? I, I think you're, it's a validation of the market. And what you're seeing here is online gambling, either iGaming or online sportsbook, really growing in the market. Even There's 11 states live now. It represents several billion dollars of market value, and it's going to probably triple or quadruple over the next three years. And that's going to open up opportunity for everyone. 
Rick, at the, you know, 2022, um, DraftKings was trading 10 bucks. It was yes. down, it lost, I don't know, 80-some percent of its value. The concern there was the spend to acquire customers. It was just an arms race. Here we are now, it's up 300%, expected to maybe hit gap profitability next year. Is the space led by DraftKings and the public markets about to hit an inflection point? I think it did hit an inflection point over this last football season. If you look at DraftKings Investor Day analysis, they're they're projecting a billion dollars of cash flow this year. Mm -hmm. So maybe not EPS positive, but they're driving their way to that, and they're still growing revenue 50%. So that was a baby, as an analogy we've used, that was thrown out with the bathwater mm -hmm. last year. And Jason Robbins, is the CEO there, has done an excellent job executing in light of the changing goalposts. DraftKings, so Flutter comes $36 billion-ish. If you just do back of the envelope, simple math, if DraftKings had a similar valuation, you're talking about a company should be twice what it is in terms of stock price. I understand it's not that simple, but to a certain extent, one has to think DraftKings is pretty, pretty cheap here. It is pretty cheap. I mean, there's still, Flutter had a bunch of different things going for it, which gave it some, some optionality, especially in a thinly traded London exchange. But DraftKings had some ups and some downs. They, they were growing very quickly. They ran into early regulatory challenges. They went public during a difficult time, and now they've managed to overcome it, and the story is just coming to light. So there's significant upside in that stock. How do you view the space in terms of the primary competitors to a name like a DraftKings? Would it be Flutter, or would it be a BetMGM or some of the regular, you know, the It, it would be both. There would be the landed casinos, and BetMGM is probably the biggest who's getting into the online world. It would be Flutter and FanDuel in the U.S. But then they're also consolidating the back end of the market. Like any market explosion, you see all kinds of competitors coming in, and then the market gets organized. So you've seen DraftKings and FanDuel really capture market share, you know, really understand what their customers need, reinvest in the product, and really grow that over the last couple of years. And that consolidation has occurred, and those are the two big winners and they're going to continue to take tremendous share in a very quickly growing market. But in terms of that back other half of the market that's going to organize, what happens to that share? They're falling apart. So they, oh, okay. they can't keep up with the spend, they can't keep up with the product, they can't keep up with the regulatory, and they're either falling away or they're being consolidated into other places. All right. Rick, good to see you. Thank Always you. great to see you. Rick Heitzman. Thank you. All right, coming up, we'll get a little spicy with the co-founders and co-CEOs of Truff, the hot sauce company that turned an Instagram account into a Kardashian partnership. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's not just the Miami sun that's hot down here, although it's not very hot today. No. It's actually cold. <laughs> Our next guests have made social media the secret sauce behind building their hot sauce empire, Truff. They secured the at sauce handle on Instagram back in 2015, two years before the founding of the company, and have parlayed their opportunity, popularity, and two movie collaborations, a partnership with Kim Kardashian. It's amazing. All without a formal culinary background. Nick Gwillen. Gian, I should say, and Nick Agiloni join us now. Nick and Nick, great to have you with us. Thanks you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So you have no training. Did you like to cook on the side? I mean, how did you come up with this idea and actually come up with the formulations? Yeah, we were definitely big foodies growing up. You know, in college especially, we would try to find different types of hot sauces to spice up our microwave dinners. <laughs> and, um, you know, at the same time, we were obsessed with social media and entrepreneurship and consumer packaged goods. and. Um, the sauce handle just kind of fell in our lap and the rest was history. So did you know that you'd create a sauce company or did you just get the sauce and think that would be applicable to other things potentially as well? 
it, so it didn't start off as a sauce company. Oh, we just okay. built a very cool like Instagram following. Uh -huh. It was like pop culture centric, foodie stuff. And after a while we were like, hey, we need to make a sauce for this account. And then we looked at the different sauces, looked at the market and saw what we thought was missing and then brought it to life. Wow. Nick yeah. G, you think about when you came to, to be, inflation started to take off probably around the same time. How much of an impact was that to your business? What, what input cost was most affected by that? So luckily we were a digitally native brand. A lot of people were, you know, on their cell phone. A lot of people were cooking at home. So for us, we were able to continue connecting with our consumers through our digital outlets like social media, but also educate them on new ways to spice up their home cooking. And our product fit very well in the mix. So do you guys see yourself expanding to other products? You've obviously proven the concept that you can just get a good handle and you can make good content. Right. If you make a great product, you have a direct-to-consumer model. What else are you guys thinking about away from these sauces? So we have more than just this. We have, um, this is, the black was our original. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then our second kind of category extension was pasta sauce, and then truffle oil, mm -hmm. and then truffle salt. Um, and then we also have mayo. But uh, hot sauce is like our hero and our core. And this green sauce, which we're trying right now, is our newest sauce. It's our first non-red sauce. It's Pretty made delicious. with green jalapeno and lime, and it's it's incredible. Which which is Kim Kardashian's favorite? She's actually a huge fan of like the oils and the salts. Mm -hmm. um, but she does love this green one. Are you gonna? So do I just it? did, and you know I have I'm a very well, delicate constitution. It is the end of the show. It is so the end of the show. Thank God. Right. But it's actually very good. <laughs> this is what I take. Yeah. Truff hot sauce. Buy it at the shop near you. <laughs> you can put that on your feed. Nick and Nick, thank you so much. Great to meet thank you. Thanks for having us on. I appreciate it. Coming up next, final trades. It is time now for the final trade from Miami Beach. Let's go around the horn. Dan. Oh, man, all those tech earnings. And it was great to have Brad. It was great to have his mm -hmm. insights. I just can't see how, as a group, they can go much higher. QQQ, short-dated puts. That's my call. You okay. can't see it. We have an amazing team here. It's where it the, the village. I mean, I'm the dope on TV, but the people behind the scenes have done an extraordinary job. So we got to thank them. We're back tomorrow. DraftKings, Rick is right. Stock is too cheap here, Mills. Yeah, you mentioned it. We're back here tomorrow, so it's going to be day two here from the iConnection Global Alts Conference. You've got a huge guest lineup uh, tomorrow. The original traders behind the big short, they will be back together. They'll be joining us here live. We'll get their best trades going into this year right now. You won't want to miss that. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.